Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Jonah chapter 3, our text for this morning's sermon. We left off um, speaking of the inclination that uh, we have, like Jonah, of resisting the call or the commands of God. Uh, Doing so is an old story and a common story. You will know that perhaps that John MacArthur had a huge impact on my life, beginning as a college student. Uh, Well, he tells the story himself of sensing a call to the ministry at a very young age. However, he was preoccupied with sports. Uh, And on the way home from college, the driver in whose car he was traveling lost control of the car. The car rolled over. He was thrown from the car. He slid seated in a seated position for a hundred yards, suffering third-degree friction burns all along his backside. And on the spot, he says, I committed my life to serving Christ. I told him I would no longer resist what he wanted me to do, which was to preach his word. He said about the accident, God suddenly had my undivided attention. Uh, Calvin was urged to return to Geneva from which he had been banished in 1538. Three years later, they were beckoning him to come back. He was deeply troubled about the prospect, uh, given the wretchedness, as his language, of the prior visit there, uh, time there, after he had been kicked out by the town council. He said, quote, My very soul must shudder when any proposal is made for my return. He speaks of his dread of that place and of his tortured conscience and boiling anxiety. He said, I would rather submit to to death a hundred times than to go to that cross, that's how he regarded Geneva, as a cross, Who will not excuse me if I am unwilling to plunge again into the whirlpool I know to be so dangerous? And yet in the end, he discerned that indeed it was the hand of God that was moving him to return. And so he did return and then, of course, had a tremendous ministry for years and years. And the motto of his life became this, I quote, My heart I offer to you, O Lord, promptly and sincerely. Uh, Jonah's lesson, uh, the lesson that was learned by MacArthur and Calvin and, and scores of others ever since, is you cannot run from God. When his call or command is upon us, it may mean that things will be hard. It may mean that we'll suffer. It may mean pain, humiliation, rejection. And yet Jonah must go to Geneva, to, 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 no, Calvin must go to Geneva and Jonah must go to Nineveh. Without much prospect of success at all, in fact, the likelihood of martyrdom because of the wickedness and violence of that people, both of which are mentioned in our text. They're evil and they're violence. And he must go and he must warn of God's judgment. It's not going to be a positive message. You are to call out against it. It's a negative message. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a, a message full of warning of, of God's judgment uh, because of their, their evils. And we, uh, we attempted last week to draw the parallels between the prophetic ministry 
of Jonah and our own responsibility as a church, as a ministry, to speak to our own civilization prophetically. We have that responsibility. Uh, the Ninevites, the Assyrians, they, they are not the people of God. They are a pagan people, and yet God has a word for them in the midst of the evil uh, that was characteristic of their civilization. Uh, so, again, where we left off last week was uh, to seek to identify the ways in which our basic, fundamental, foundational institutions are tottering, and that these are signs of the judgment of God upon us as a civilization. Marriage, which of course is fundamental to any civilization, is now passe, as evidenced by the percentages of children that are born illegitimate and the percentages of couples that are living in cohabitation rather than marriage. Uh, marriage has been redefined as any social arrangement. Uh, the military has been politicized. The church has been corrupted and co-opted. Schools and colleges indoctrinate our young people in an anti-Christian ideology rather than educate. Law enforcement is mistrusted locally and nationally. The courts are perceived by half of the population as being partial to the powerful. The electoral process is, the, the legitimacy of it is doubted by two-thirds of our population. You see, these institutions, they are all either crumbling or corrupted. And then there's problems we can't seem to solve. Our debt as a nation is unsustainable. Our border, we're unable to control it. Race relations are more polarized than ever. There's been this spike in crime for the fourth year in a row, and we cannot seem to solve that problem. In other words, there has been a social revolution. All this has taken place in one lifetime. Social revolution in which our corporations have been enlisted, in which Hollywood serves as the propaganda wing for the moral revolution that is taking place. And social media uh, functions as censors of those who dissent. Uh, so our society as a whole, in summary, has, has taken a decisively anti-Christian and anti-God turn. And the acids of unbelief are eroding the foundations of our civilization, and the direction of our civilization is not sustainable. So in chapter 2, verse 10, Jonah is back on shore. Nineveh is at the precipice of judgment. And so what happens next? Number one, Jonah goes to Nineveh. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That, that in itself is significant. You would understand if God were to say of Jonah, ah, you're unreliable. I, I commanded you to go. You didn't go. You failed me. You blew it. Uh, so your opportunity of serving me, it's over. I'm, 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 I'm placing you in retirement. Uh, but no, God is gracious. God is kind. God is patient with his servants. And so Jonah gets a separate opportunity. He gets a second chance saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. You're not going to make up your own message. You're going to go. So verse 2, or verse 3, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Psalm 119 says, the psalmist says, It was good for me that, that I was afflicted. It was the affliction that brought Jonah to heal, brought Jonah to obedience. 
that uh, dissuaded Jonah uh, from any, any further thoughts of rebellion against the, the call of God and the command of God. He must do what God tells him to do. Matthew Henry, in his comments on this passage, is that, passage says, God's servants must go where he sends, come when he calls, and do what he bids. And that's exactly, the, that's exactly right. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He obeys. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It's a city of 120,000 people, which is vast in those days. It, uh, three days journey, the next uh, clause in the passage tells us, three days journey in, in breadth. So Nineveh holds a place of prominence in the ancient world as the capital city of a vast empire, the empire of the Assyrians, something like that of, of uh, New York City, Washington, D.C., Los Angeles, um, London, Paris, Beijing, one of the capitals of one of the great, one of the great nations of the world. It's a, that kind of a place, and it is utterly unbelieving, characteristically wicked, evil, and full of violence. And verse four, Jonah began to go into the city, going a three, going a day's journey, and he called out, "Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown." So it's the same message that he was commanded to, to preach first time out. Chapter 1, verse 2, call out against it for their evil. You're, you're going to preach against them because they're evil. Because of their wickedness. In other words, what, what Jonah's message is, we, we can put it this way. It's law and gospel. It's law it's, look, look you, you are transgressing the laws of God in your evil. You are violating the Ten Commandments. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments uh, periodically on Sunday nights. You are breaking the commandments. You are in violation of the will of God. You are bringing dishonor to God by your behavior. You are evil. You are wicked. He's preaching the law to them and warning them because of your behavior, because of your conduct, you will be judged. Condemnation rests upon you. Destruction awaits. That's a very negative message. That's not a message people want to hear. There's not much hope of success in, in that message. And yet that's the message that he is to preach. The law of God which warns of the judgment to come. But it also implied in that message is the, the hope of forgiveness. The hope of pardon. In other words, there's gospel as well. There's the, he holds out the prospect that if they will repent of their sin, that God may extend mercy to them. He may forgive their sins. He may pardon their transgressions. They may be reconciled to their maker. So that the message of Jonah is indeed the message of the church in all ages. It is law and the warning of judgment, and it is gospel and the promise of forgiveness. Now, Jonah wouldn't be pre preaching this with the kind of clarity that we do uh, because we are this side of the incarnation, because of the revelation of God and Jesus Christ. And so we have a, a greater clarity of the gospel. But nevertheless, it is the same message. In fact, Jesus draws the parallel when he warns uh, Capernaum and the other cities of Galilee that Nineveh repented at the preaching 
of Jonah, but a greater than Jonah is here and you haven't repented. In other words, Jesus came in Jonah-like fashion and he comes to every generation in Jonah-like fashion. Preaching what? Law and gospel. Here are the commands of God. Here's the way in which you're failing to keep the commands. Here is the judgment that awaits that is certain if you do not repent. By the way, this combination, law and gospel, that's at the root of every denomination. I think the Lutherans have seen uh, law and gospel as a kind of summary of the uh, biblical message with perhaps greater clarity or with more emphasis at least than have uh, other Protestants. Uh, but it's a part of the Reformed tradition as well. Calvin, we find him speaking of law and gospel. And throughout the, you know, the history of the Presbyterian and Reformed churches, uh, the Methodists likewise, law and gospel. That's our message. That's what we have to say. Not law without gospel, just law and moralism and judgment. Uh, not gospel without law. Repent where, where people have no idea what they are to repent of and why, why God would be displeased and why judgment might be coming. No, we have the responsibility for both. Law, gospel. That's the full message of the Bible. That's what Jonah is preaching. And that's our message today to our civilization. So number one, Jonah goes to Nineveh. Number two, Jonah sees success. Look at verse 5. And the people of Nineveh, against you know, all expectation, they believed God. They believed his servant. They heard the message. They received the message. And they respond. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, a hair shirt representative of repentance of sin. They call for a fast. They put on sackcloth to demonstrate in a visible kind of way the reality of their repentance. And this was the case from the greatest of them to the least of them. And look at verse 6. It reaches right up into the, 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 the palace as well. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Again, these are ceremonial ways of demonstrating the earnestness and the sincerity and the depth and the reality of one's repentance. This is not a superficial, oh, I'm sorry that we, we did thus and so. No, this is deep. This is heartfelt. This is grieving for one's sin. So he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his what? From his evil way. Ah, the, the king of Nineveh, he, he understands the message. He understands the problem. There's evil. He, he embraces the judgment. He, he embraces the message and the identification of of the characteristic behavior of his kingdom as an evil thing in the sight of God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from, uh, and turn from his fierce anger, implied justifiable anger, justifiable wrath, justifiable judgment, given the evil that we have committed so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their, once again, evil. This is unambiguous. 
This is not a relative understanding of right and wrong. No, it's evil. They turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. I think we ought to be encouraged when we read a passage like this. If we're discouraged by what we see taking place around us, this ought to encourage us, given the evil, given the wickedness, and given that these people had no background whatsoever in biblical religion, no contact with the prophets of God. And yet, when they heard the message, it resonated, and they repented of their sins. That's all to say, that could happen today. It's happened periodically in the history of the church. The early church came into the Greco-Roman world in which entertainment uh, was to go to an arena and watch human beings get slaughtered or slaughter each other, either torn apart by wild animals or hacking each other to death with swords and spears. That, that was entertainment. What kind of a civilization? What kind of a people? What kind of seared consciences could tolerate such a thing? Slavery in those days had absolutely no limitations. The slave owner did whatsoever he wanted with his slaves, including the young boys and the young girls, without any restrictions, without any limitations, without any legal ramifications at all. He had absolute power over his slaves and exercised that power with regularity. Sexual perversion was of the worst imaginable. There were plunging rates of birth and marriage in that Greco-Roman world. And, and of course, then there was government oppression at every hand. Many, 11 out of 12 apostles martyred. Multiple numbers of the church fathers martyred by the Roman government. And then there's the Middle Ages, when the church was able to take the gospel, often at the initiative of Irish monks, into Northern Europe and Western, uh, Western and Central and Eastern Europe, in, into a, lands that were characterized by raw paganism and barbarism. And, 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 and again, without any background at all, without, without any context for understanding what was being preached. And yet, over time, Europe was converted. During the Reformation, the Reformers were addressing Renaissance Europe, which had sunk deeply into perversion and corruption and ignorance. And yet God blessed their efforts and Europe was transformed by the Reformation, and, 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 and some credit is due as well to the, to, uh, the, the, the Counter-Reformation and, and, and the reforms that took place throughout the church, both Protestant and Roman Catholic. Jonah sees success. The early church saw success. The medieval church, the Church of the Reformation, saw success in difficult situations in which there was little expectation for change and for hope. And yet, as with Jonah in Nineveh, that transformation took place. How? Through the preaching of the gospel, the law and gospel, showing a civilization the evil of it, the wickedness of it, the sinfulness of it, warning of the judgment that's to come, and, and, and then holding out the prospect of forgiveness, of mercy, of pardon and reconciliation with God in our day with the clarity of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
So then I want to move on to number three, to give reasons for hope. Not just historical precedent, like, like, like Jonah, like the early church, like the Middle Ages, like the Reformation, but the message itself. See, I think what we, what we struggle with is despairing of thinking that anybody's going to believe anything that we have to say. Um, I'm going to go into some, some, some detail about this because there's such hostility and such mockery of biblical religion that, you know, we wonder why would anybody think, believe anything of what we have to say to our generation today. And so I want to give uh, two reasons. Number one, our theology resonates. It rings true. What am I talking about? Talk about what we have to say about God, the God that we preach. This is what the Apostle Paul says, Romans 1, verse 19. What can be known about God is plain to them. The them that he's talking about, are the, he's talking about the unbelieving world. He's talking about paganism. He's talking about people who don't have the Bible, people who don't know biblical religion, who've not had the benefit of the, you know, the prophets of God. They, they don't know what the Bible says. But he says, uh, no, uh, that can be known about God is plain to them. And then he says, because God has shown it to them. Well, how did that happen? They don't have the Bible. Where do they learn these things? He says, for his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. Uh, they're not ambiguous at all. They're clear. They're obvious. The things about God, his, his, his in, invisible attributes, his divine nature and power. How, how is that so, Paul? Well, since, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that he has made so that they are without excuse. The things that he has made. The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19.1, what's true of God is perfectly obvious for anyone who will look at the world around them and draw the right conclusions from what can be observed. He goes on, verse 21 of Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Don't let that just rush by. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking or in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. What he's saying here, there's a true knowledge of God that's built in, the sense of the divine. It's within everybody. And now we suppress it, we exchange it for a lie, that's part of the rebellious nature of the human beings, but deep within our own consciences, there's a sense of the divine, the sense of God, the knowledge of God, the truth of God, it's there. So what happens when we preach it? Now, they may clench their fists. They, 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 they may, they may uh, you know, grind their teeth when we do, but buried within, it resonates. It rings true. What we're saying about God, they know that it's true. They may fight against it. They may resist it. They may deny it. But they do know the truth. And so when we have the audacity and the bravery and the courage to speak that truth, they're hearing the ring of it. It's, it's, it's pricking the consciousness. consciousness. You know, the Apostle Paul uh, says of his own conversion uh, that Jesus said to him, Paul, Paul, why, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the goads? Against the goads, the goads of conscience. Why are you resisting? You know the truth. You buried it in your own soul, but you know the truth. Quit resisting. Quit kicking against it. That's what our civilization is doing. 
It's, a, it's positing false gods, gods with different attributes, God who isn't concerned with righteousness or justice and certainly isn't holy. No, he's this God and, that, and he's, he's, he's amorphous. He's, he's without standards. He's without morals. He's not holy. He's not concerned about right and wrong. He just wants everyone together and to love. But love has, in, this, in the popular conception, has no boundaries at all. It's a false God. And when we preach about the, new, the true God, before whom you one day stand, the Almighty One, who will judge the living and the dead, I'm telling you it resonates. They hear the ring of truth. There's conviction that comes along with that. And uh, the, the, the hostile response is just evidence. Why not just be indifferent? Why not just say, oh, who cares about all that? Why, why, why the response of anger? Why is it labeled as hate speech? When we speak about the God of the Bible, why is it labeled as hate speech? Because it resonates and it's resisted and it's resented. And, and our, our autonomy expresses itself in, in all-out rebellion. I, I will not be ruled by God. I will not be told what to do. I will have my own way. So the reason that Jonah can go to Nineveh and preach the message about God and this utterly pagan and ignorant people respond with repentance and faith is because the message of the truth of God resonates and rings true and they hear the sound of truth and it leads to repentance. As that which is suppressed springs forth. And then I want to say secondly, our ethics resonate. This is, this is surprising, again, given the vehemence of, of the of the, you know, the kind of opposition that we spark today in our civilization. Uh, Tim Keller, a few years back, published the book Reasons for God. He said the book was obsolete the day it was published. Obsolete. Uh, why? Because people were no longer asking the questions that book was designed to answer. There's really been this sea change in terms of the unbelieving world in our civilization. You see, before, when I, was, when I was coming along, coming of age, college, after college, we all studied apologetics. We wanted to prove that the resurrection had taken place. We wanted to prove and demonstrate that, you know, that, uh, that, that the, the, the scriptures were inspired. So we, had, we wanted to prove the existence of God. Today, very few people are asking those questions or care about them. Where the rub is is ethics. What, what makes Christianity seem to be implausible to our generation is not the miraculous, it's the morals. That, that's where, where all the resistance comes. So Keller was asking and answering questions, and we sometimes are asking and answering questions that no one is asking anymore. No, it's, a, it's the morals that cause the problem. It's our concept of right and wrong, the limitations that we would place upon people's behavior, the moral code of Christianity. And see, what they say is uh, that moral code of yours, uh, that, that, that's, that's, not, that's not a reflection of reality. In fact, there, there is this denial that we can even know reality. We can't know truth. We can't know morality. We can't know beauty. Your moral code is just an exercise of power. 
All right, that, that's really the language that we use today. You know, a moral code, your moral code, that, that's, not, that's not an expression of any kind of ethical reality rooted somewhere in the transcendent. No, it's all about power. That's your way of controlling other people. That's the way the powerful oppress and control and hold down uh, this group and that group and the other group particularly moral minorities, are all oppressed by your moral code. Your core moral code is just your way of exercising power over other people. See, that's what they say. And there is no, there is no ultimate moral reality, and there is no ultimate reality whatsoever. Everything is individualized. Each one must create his and her own reality. So all of the, uh, this is the, why we have become a hyper-individualistic society. I, I, I must create my own reality. I mean, the Supreme Court says that very thing in previous decisions. I must create my own reality. Why? Because there is no reality. So I just create my own. You see, in the past, you know, I, people drew identity from from the fact that they were born into a given family. So family, that's part of my identity. I'm a Smith or I'm a Jones. And, and they, they drew their identity from their religion. Well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. And they drew their identity from their location. I'm, I'm, you know, this is my neighborhood. You know, I can say, I'm a Christian. I was, I was a Christian, Baptist, uh, 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 American. Californian. See, I was drawing uh, identity from religion and family and location. And those, those were the institutions, as it were, that, 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 that gave to individuals of my generation the markers of their identity that helped to shape their understanding of reality. If you look back at the pictures of the 1965 World Series, it's Sandy Colfax against Whitey Ford. It's the Dodgers against, uh, um, or the 1963 World Series. Dodgers and Yankees, 65. Dodgers and, and Twins. I know them well because I grew up a Dodger fan. But if you look at the crowd, virtually every man in the crowd is wearing a white shirt and a tie. That is to say, we all dressed the same. There was tremendous variety, but there were parameters. I think that we see the kind of anarchy in fashion today where you've got every conceivable hair color and every conceivable style of, of dress, and the body becomes a billboard for the message of my identity. I think you have this anarchy, this chaos, culturally, because of the collapse of all the institutions because there is no reality. So I must create my own reality and express that, that reality of who I am by the way I dress and, and the, way, the, the fashion that I adopt. And all of this is, is, is ethereal. It, it, there, there's no substance to it. There's nothing rooted in it. Because there's this denial of the real world. There's this denial of right and wrong. There's the, the institutions that used to strengthen the individual. They're collapsing all around. And so there's nothing left but the reality that I create for myself. And so, so many of our, our countrymen, they are, they are at sea, as it were. Because all the sources for identity are collapsing. 
And there's no institutional support for behavior and conduct and right and wrong and understanding who I am and my identity. So I, the extreme expression of this, of course, is I, I can't, I can't, as, as a modern person, I can't even know if I'm a man or a woman. Not on the basis of my body. Or if I'm meant to be in intimate union with my own sex or the opposite sex. I can't know any of these things. It's all up for me to decide. It's all up to the individual to create my own reality, to create my own identity, to create my own moral system, to live as I would have myself live, and then to express all of that in, in, in a very individualized way. But here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, speaking again of the unbelieving world, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Work of the law. What law? The law of God. It's written on their hearts. While their consciences also bear witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. When we preach right and wrong, when we preach the law of God, it resonates and so here's, here's what I want to say about that. The very same people who deny that there's any reality, that there's any right and wrong, that there's any standard of, of beauty, they're the same people, often, who will be the champions of human rights. Because they can't avoid living in God's world. They draw upon what is really borrowed capital from a Christian understanding of things, that all people are created equal in the sight of God, bearing his image that's a Christian idea. You don't find it anywhere else. It's not in the ancient world. It's not in the world of antiquity. It's not amongst the Egyptians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. They didn't have any concept of universal human rights, human dignity, human sanctity. That, that was a Christian idea. You don't find it anywhere else in the world except where Christianity has gone. And yet, some of the most vocal denials of, deniers of any reality of any moral absolutes, of any standards of beauty or truth, are the champions of universal human rights. Why? Because you can't escape the truth of God. And when we dare to preach it, it resonates. So we preach the law of God. We teach the sanctity of human life, the sixth commandment. Resonates. We preach the sanctity of marriage. They may fight against it. They may say, oh, no, you, you know, they may be so, sexual, social revolutionaries, but it resonates. They know this is, there's more to it. They know, that, they know that there's a sanctity to this. This is not like any other activity. This is not like any other behavior. This is not like any other relationship when it comes to that. They know that you shouldn't steal. They know that you shouldn't lie. They know that you shouldn't covet other people. They may fight against our moral code, but I'm telling you, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 2, it resonates. There are standards. There is right and wrong. It's not all up to the individual. I don't create my own reality. Life is more than just the expressive individual. But there's a God in heaven, and there's right and wrong, and there is justice and righteousness and truth. And it can be distinguished from error. And when we proclaim it as Jonah claimed it in Nineveh, it resonates. And their consciences either cause angst and uneasiness accusing them 
or it convicts. And then third and last, in terms of reasons for hope, because Jesus is compelling. All right, we have this advantage over Jonah. There was no Jesus for Jonah to preach. I'm saying Jesus is compelling. His teaching is compelling. The Sermon on the Mount. That's the greatest teaching that's ever been delivered on this planet. His Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. His call to love our neighbors and love our enemies. The Lord's Prayer. His charge to lay up treasures in heaven, not on earth, to judge not lest we be judged, to ask that it shall be given to us and seek that we might find and knock that it might be opened to us. His parables, the good Samaritan, the prodigal son, the rich fool, the rich man and Lazarus, the I am's, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, he who believes in me shall never thirst. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies, and the one who lives and believes in me shall never die. What about those claims? I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd who who lays down his life for the sheep. And how about his invitation? Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You take my yoke upon you and learn of me, I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He's compelling. Christianity has a remarkable capacity to renew itself. J.C. Ryle, writing in the 19th century, in the middle 1800s, looking back to 100 years before, says of that period, 100 years prior to when he's writing, right in the mid-19th century, mid-1800s, He says of the mid-1700s, Christianity seemed to lie as one dead. He says there was darkness in high places and darkness in low places. Darkness in the court, the camp, the parliament, and the bar. Darkness in the country, darkness in the town, darkness among rich, darkness among poor. A gross, thick, religious, and moral darkness. A darkness that might be felt. Then he says this, the churches did nothing. They were sound asleep. They were like Noah. They were like Jonah in the back of the boat, sleeping. The storm is raging. Jonah's asleep. The storms are raging. We're asleep. That's what he says, 1700s. They were asleep. The land was deluged with infidelity and skepticism. He says of the authors popularly read then, few people nowadays, he's saying 100 years later after this dark period, would allow those authors' books to be seen on their drawing room table. Such a change had taken place. He speaks of the great change for better that has come over England and the English-speaking world in the last 100 years. He says, both in religion and morality, the country has gone through a complete revolution. 100 years. That's what I think it will take us. If we're faithful, preach the gospel, preach law and gospel, it'll take 100 years to turn things around. That's really my, you know, guess, guesstimate. It's going to take a long time. We have plunged into a darkness, and it hasn't, the trajectory hasn't slowed. It's only accelerated. Uh, so it, can it turn around? Yes. Did it turn around in Nineveh? Yes, it did. 
Did it turn around in ancient Rome? Yes, it did. How about medieval Central Europe? Yes, it did. How about uh, the decadence of the Renaissance? Yes, it got turned around by the Reformation. What about the darkness of, of the 17th century, 18th century? Did, did those get turned around? Yes, they did. Can they get turned around today? Yes, it can. Jonah chapter 3 gives us hope that despite uh, the crumbling of the institutions, of the problems that we can't solve, and, 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 and the accelerating trajectory of evil that we see all around us, it can be turned around. And what we must do is just continue to be faithful and to address through the law of God the evils and the wickedness and the violence of our day and hold out in Jesus Christ the promise of salvation, deliverance, and the withholding of that judgment that otherwise will be our destiny. Will you pray to that end that we and the churches of Christ will be faithful to preach the law and the gospel to our generation? Not gospel without law, not law without gospel, but law and gospel, judgment and promise. Uh, that we might see the masses of our people and then right up into the palaces, the palaces of power, whatever they may be in our civilization, that we might see this mighty revival uh, like Jonah saw through his preaching as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we see the gathering darkness, uh, we pray for the light of Christ to shine ever more brightly. We pray that there would be a revival in the churches, spreading to a rev revival uh, throughout the entire population, from the highest offices to the wealthiest mansions to the corridors of power uh, throughout our land. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.